I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. History was made on January 6th, 2021. And today, nearly 18 months later, we are still coming to terms with what happened at the Capitol that day. In this episode, we look back at part of that history and what's been shared so far by the House Select Committee investigating the attack. There is some new information, more than I expected. We'll hear from some of the key players involved, and Jim and I will also discuss what's been raised during the hearings and occasionally disagree. Instead of our usual interview with an actual expert, (laughs) in this one, Richard, (laughs) you and I are going to go through... Some audio extracts from the committee, and also we should note that there are more hearings expected during the coming weeks. President Trump summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. The police officers who held the line that day honored their oath. Many came out of that day bloodied and broken. They still bear those wounds, visible and invisible. They did their duty. They repelled the mob and ended the occupation of the Capitol. They defended the Constitution against domestic enemies so that Congress could return, uphold our own oath, and count your votes to ensure the transfer of power just as we've done for hundreds of years. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Let's start with the video that was released by the House Committee. Richard, you do know this is a podcast, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, so we won't be seeing it, but we will be hearing it. And what we hear, as well as what we saw, is pretty chilling. Some of what we saw on the first night of hearings was previously unaired footage from security cameras and from a documentary filmmaker who was there that day. The first breach of the Capitol came just minutes after President Trump had been speaking at a Stop the Steal rally near the White House. While many in the crowd seemed to have just been swept up in the moment, you know, in the excitement, 
we also saw some who were clearly organized and dressed for battle. We're trying to hold the upper deck. We're trying to hold the upper deck now. We need to hold the doors of the Capitol. The first night of the House hearing was aired during primetime on a Thursday. I was struck about the solemn tone of much of the hearings. The, the media is often about the theater of the moment. We were told that a retired ABC News president uh, had, had produced that first two hours. Um, we're often caught up in the sport of politics, but much of the evidence was presented in a pretty thoughtful, methodical way. And that first hearing began with this statement from the chair. I'm Benny Thompson, chairman of the January 6th, 2021 committee. I was born, raised, and still live in Bolton, Mississippi, a town with a population of 521, which is midway between Jackson and Vicksburg, Mississippi, and the Mississippi River. I'm from a part of the country where people justify the actions of slavery, the Ku Klux Klan, and lynching. I'm reminded of that dark history as I hear voices today try and justify the actions of the insurrectionists on January 6, 2021. Part of what we heard from Thompson was a sort of history lesson. He reminded viewers that the Capitol was attacked in 1814 by the British, and he noted that after the Civil War, all members of Congress and federal government employees were required to swear an oath to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That rule, of course, is still in place. The police officers who held the line that day honored their oath. Many came out of that day blooded and broken. They still bear those wounds, visible and invisible. They did their duty. They repelled the mob and ended the occupation of the Capitol. They defended the Constitution against domestic enemies so that Congress could return, uphold our own oath, and count your votes to ensure the transfer of power, just as we've done for hundreds of years. And... Also in his remarks, Thompson borrowed a famous phrase from Ronald Reagan. America has long been expected to be a shining city on the hill, a beacon of hope and freedom, a model for others when we are at our best. How can we play that role when our house is in such disorder? We must confront the truth with candor, resolve, and determination. We need to show that we are worthy of the gifts that are the birthright of every American. After Democrat Benny Thompson spoke, we heard from Vice Chair Liz Cheney, one of only two Republicans on the committee. President Trump summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. Mr. Chairman, at 6.01 p.m. on January 6th, after he spent hours watching a violent mob besiege, attack, and invade our Capitol. Donald Trump tweeted, but he did not condemn the attack. Instead, he justified it. These are the things and events that happen, he said, when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away 
from great patriots who've been badly and unfairly treated for so long. Much of the new information released by the committee was about the reaction to the riot from President Trump himself and things that were going on in the White House as the Capitol building was invaded. You will hear that President Trump was yelling and, quote, really angry at advisors who told him he needed to be doing something more. And aware of the rioters' chance to hang Mike Pence, the president responded with this sentiment, quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea. Mike Pence, quote, deserves it. We heard extracts from interviews with former senior officials in the Trump administration. Some members of his inner circle cooperated with the committee while others defied it. More than a thousand people have been interviewed in all. I think that the statements by former Attorney General Bill Barr were just about the most striking. Repeatedly uh, told the president in no uncertain terms uh, that uh, I did not see evidence of fraud uh, and, uh, you know, that would have affected the outcome uh, of the election. And frankly, a year and a half later, I haven't seen anything to, to change my mind on that. As for Trump's claims that voting machines had been tampered with or that the election had been stolen through some kind of mass fraud, well, Bard said that was all, and I quote, bullshit. I saw absolutely zero basis for the allegations, but they were made in such a sensational way that they obviously were influencing a lot of people, uh, members of the public, that there was this systemic corruption in the system and that their votes didn't count and that these machines controlled by somebody else were actually determining it, which was complete nonsense. And it was being laid out there. And I told them that it was that it was. Uh, crazy stuff, and they were wasting their time on that. We could be at this all day, Jim, but there was another striking moment I wanted to highlight, which is uh, the appearance of Ben Ginsburg, who may be the most well-known Republican election lawyer in the country over the past 20 years or so. Ginsburg represented Republican presidential campaigns in 2000, 2004, and 2012. And in his testimony, he drew a clear distinction between the results of 2020 and the very close Bush versus Gore vote in 2000. The 2020 election was not close. In 2000, that was 537 and close. In this election, the most narrow margin was 10,000 and something in, in Arizona. And you just don't make up that, those sorts of numbers in recounts. So are you aware of any instance in which a court found the Trump campaign's fraud claims to be credible? No, there was, there was never that instance. Uh, in all the cases that were brought, and I've looked at the more than 60 that include more than 180 counts. And no, the simple fact is that the Trump campaign did not make its case. Ben Ginsburg uh, testifying before the House committee. Um, some of your impressions, Jim. This is a tough one, Richard, because it's one of those topics where just to explain the nuance, you know, the on the one hand, on the other hand, would take about half an hour. But let me try to channel what a lot of conservatives are 
are thinking about this, they kind of fall into two groups. One group is the Trumpy types who are just turning their backs on the whole thing. They don't want to hear it. They think it's all just an attempt to distract the public from everything going wrong in the country right now. And they've turned their backs on it. But there's another group of conservatives who have a more complex view. They think what happened that day was really bad. It was shameful. And they think it's worthwhile to investigate it and see what happened there and what happened that day, what happened in the White House. There's still stuff to learn. But they're also very critical of the way this committee has has functioned, in particular, initially when House Republican Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy presented the names of, of five Republicans to be on the committee to Nancy Pelosi, she rejected two of them. One of them was Representative Jim Jordan, who's a real Trumpy kind of firebrand stuff. You can understand why she wouldn't want something like that on the committee, but not giving the Republicans a chance to see at least one or two Trump partisans on, on the committee to to represent that side of the debate. Is that your understanding, Jim, that she didn't give them any chance at all, that that uh, Pelosi just simply rejected it and, and went on? There was no offer of compromise or maybe a couple of, of more Trump-oriented members being allowed onto the committee? I don't know if they had a further conversation about it. I don't know if there was a, a, a negotiation behind the scene, but uh, McCarthy kind of dramatically withdrew all five members and so it was Pelosi who picked the two Republicans that are on the committee. If there had been those sort of Trumpy Republicans on the on the panel, yes, the hearings would have been a, would have involved more grandstanding. Some things might have been a lot more heated. But in the end, I think that the Trump partisans would have felt like, well, at least their side got a chance to speak up, to object, because now anyone who doesn't completely buy into the Democrats' view of of what happened is left wondering, well, okay, we're hearing this, we're hearing that. Who are we not hearing from? I think you could certainly level criticism at both Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy, the, the leaders of the two parties in the House, for the way that they completely failed to compromise on uh, having more Republican members of the committee. I, I understand that. I think the blame goes goes with both of them. But you say that this is a democratic view of what happened. And yet some of the key testimony, much of it has been by Republicans. And also that a lot of of the interviews, a lot of the responses have been by Republicans. And the most forceful Republican on the committee, the vice chair, Liz Cheney, has been a lifelong conservative, and, and some of her political views are well to the right, actually, of, of, of some Republicans in the House. I really am not buying the idea that this is just a Democratic view of the events of January 6th. Right. Well, that testimony is very valuable. And I think we are learning some some really uh, valuable things and some pretty scary things from that testimony. But sadly, the nature of our politics today is that, you know, Trump's influence over the party is strong enough that someone like uh, like Liz Cheney, who is an outspoken Trump opponent, uh, sadly, is just not going to be taken very seriously by a large portion of the of the Republican base. Maybe that's dumb. Maybe that's bad. That's not as it should be. But that's the reality. 
So if we want a committee that is able to raise information that is regarded as, as having been conducted in good faith, having the, the prominent Republican on the committee picked by Nancy Pelosi, that doesn't win over a lot of, of Republicans, even if the things that Cheney's saying are, are correct. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. Before we continue with this episode, a quick mention of another podcast, The Purple Principle. The show digs into a subject that we often mention here, political and cultural polarization. The Purple Principle is now into its third season. The show currently looking at statewide polarization and the 2022 primaries this month it's California politics with guest co-host and NPR journalist Barbara Bogave. There are interviews with author and geographer Joel Kotkin and Dan Schnur, former GOP strategist and independent candidate. Subscribe to The Purple Principle so you don't miss upcoming episodes with Leon Panetta and the L.A. Times' Gustavo Ariano and others. Just search for The Purple Principle on your favorite podcast app and visit purpleprinciple.com. Now back to our conversation about the January 6th committee. The somber nature of the proceedings, which I really do think have added to their weight, would have been disrupted, though, if two or three members of the committee had been calling it a sham and just saying the whole thing is, is, is fixed and rigged. It could have just been theater. I think, well, it is theater, Richard. You know, the somber invoking the War of 1812 and stuff. That's also a form of theater. It's just a more sophisticated theater that that serves the interests of of the party conducting the, the proceedings. I, I just feel it serves a lot more than the interests of of the Democrats. Right. But I'm trying to, what I'm trying to do is show why this isn't working to inform the public and heal some of the wounds of that day as well as it it should have. And I'm not saying the fault of that is all Nancy Pelosi. A, a lot of the fault of that is the irrationality and ex- of the Trumpy wing of the Republican Party, the, the almost psychotic levels of delusion we, we see from, from Trump. So th- this is why this is such a kind of a tricky area to speak fairly about because you can hold a lot of different things in your mind at once that are all bad. You know, like everything Trump did was bad. Everything that happened that day is bad. Most of what somebody like Jim Jordan would probably say is probably bad. But that doesn't mean that the that what's happening on this committee is is going to succeed in in doing the job that we would hope it would do. I'm not sure the committee can knock sense into those people who think that uh, Trump was right and the, and the election was stolen. I think the duty of the committee was to give a fair rendering of what uh, happened on that day. And the evidence has been pretty damning. And some of the evidence that makes it clear that Trump tried to overturn the election, some of the strongest critics and people who tried to foil him were inside the Trump administration. Something that you and I would probably agree on is that over the past five years or so, anybody who's had anything to do with Trump has been utterly ridiculed by much of the mainstream media. Whereas what this hearing has shown is that there's some 
This is a pretty sane people who who reacted appropriately. There were Trump campaign officials, for instance, who called themselves Team Normal as opposed to Team Crazy uh, inside the, the the Trump White House. And speaking of nuance, I think there's been a lot of nuance among. Republicans such as Bill Barr and, and Ben Ginsburg, but also others in the in the Trump campaign. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Bill Barr is certainly a kind of a, a voice of of reason and, and common sense uh, in his avuncular styles. So it's great to hear his voice, you know, in that selection of clips. The voice coming <laughs> months after he probably should have spoken out, but still. Uh, yeah, um, he. He resigned over this, honestly, and uh, I think it was pretty clear that why he resigned. So I do think we came dangerously close to Trump making things even worse or trying to make things even worse at a state level. But, Jim, I know you have another criticism of the House Select Committee and its focus on an alleged well-thought-out conspiracy by Trump. January 6th was the culmination of an attempted coup, a brazen attempt, as one rioter put it shortly after January 6th, to overthrow the government. The violence was no accident. That was Benny Thompson. And Liz Cheney, during her statement, said that Trump had a sophisticated seven-point plan to overthrow the 2020 election during the course of several months. Trump definitely wanted to overturn the election, <laughs> but sophisticated plan, I, I'm not buying that. I don't think Trump has ever had a sophisticated plan to do anything. The guy lives in the moment and does everything, seat of the pants, ad hoc, throws stuff together. I don't think he can plan more than 10 minutes ahead. So the the idea that you can look at a series of events, well, this happened, then that happened, then that happened, then that happened, and then retroactively say, well... Obviously, it was all coordinated and planned to happen in exactly that way. That's conspiracy theory type thinking. You look at the complex events that played out in the real world and you assume a disciplined, motivating force behind them as opposed to, you know, the randomness of a lot of real life. I'm not buying that the invasion of the Capitol building was part of a sophisticated plan to overturn the election. If it was, they... The, the people that they chose to do it certainly weren't very organized about anything. Um, and, you know, you look at the videos in there that, that, that day, there were some very scary, violent people. And, but most of the people inside the Capitol were like tourists bumbling around and being idiots. This may surprise you, Jim, but I largely agree. Much of what was going on that day was a total mess. And that there were some people who were just swept up by the excitement and kind of thrilled to go along. Um, had not planned to invade the Capitol. I think there were a lot of people in that crowd who looked like they were, I don't know, um, just just out for a bit of fun um, and had not known what was going to happen. Uh, clearly, there were some very organized attempts, but whether they were strictly coordinated by the White House or merely just given a sort of implicit nod by the president is still up for debate. I'd like to know, like, those Proud Boys guys, they seem really scary to me. Mm -hmm. Were they actually in communication with anybody in the White House? I mean, you know, if you're if you're alleging this was a conspiracy, they seem like the most organized kind of paramilitary people who were on the ground that day. So who was guiding them? Who were they talking to? 
was there a secret plan for them to do some specific thing? That would be earth shattering and very, very important to know. And we haven't heard anything like that yet. Let me ask you about another way that the committee has been criticized by some on the moderate right. I'm thinking of David Brooks and and Ross Duthat, the New York Times columnists who have both criticized the select committee, saying that it should have the goal of preventing Trump's return to power and should be about looking forward rather than looking back on what happened on that day. Personally, I don't agree with them. I think that this committee was specifically set up to investigate the events of of January 6th. I think they've done a pretty darn good job. It is important before we can look to remedies to understand the details of what happened. There was a lot we still didn't know. We are learning a few interesting things, especially about what happened inside the White House that day. And a committee that seems to be set out with a predetermined outcome, I think, might might have even a harder time getting any kind of buy-in from from the right, and not just you know that the Trumpy fringe, but there's a lot of more moderate Republicans or swing voters who voted for Trump that are persuadable, and and I think we need to be talking to those people. Also. Congress had a chance to make sure that Trump could not run again if they had moved quickly to uh, impeach and then convict. There was a, a strong group of Republicans in the days after the event that were pushing for impeachment and and willing to to move forward on it. That enthusiasm faded pretty quickly. And and Democrats didn't pursue moving to the conviction phase. Uh, you know, there were, Trump only had a, a a few weeks in office. They didn't move as quickly as one might have thought. And the kind of the moment was lost. And I think that's a real tragedy because it, we our whole political world would be very different right now if Trump had been convicted and we weren't facing this. What I think is a very real threat to to our country's stability uh, it, with the idea of Trump running and possibly winning again in 2024. Well, that's certainly a depressing prospect. A narcissist with no regard for our Constitution and electoral law, yet still the most powerful figure in the Republican Party, which is likely to take back control of Congress in the midterm election later this year. Before we end, something a bit brighter, a recommendation. Jim, I, I gather you you have something on your mind. Yeah, I, as you know, I had COVID a few weeks ago and I thought, OK, I'm going to be sort of stuck in bed for a few days, maybe, or at least not doing much. And I wanted to read something that was familiar and not too challenging. And I pulled down my old copy of Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, the famous dystopian novel about a future in which book burning is considered a a uh, civic obligation. Are are we there yet? (laughs) Are are our times that bad? (laughs) No, but it was really interesting to read. It was written in 1950, and it is an an interesting look at how a culture can sort of, unlike, say, in 1984, where a lot of power is top-down and is aimed at, at forcing certain ideas out of the public sphere, 
the the censorship in Fahrenheit 451 is more organic, almost ground up. That the the public as a whole came to this idea that these old books and ideas were dangerous and bad and we needed to get rid of them. And instead, everyone's kind of anesthetized by television and, and other entertainments. And it's an interesting thought that people can convince themselves that they shouldn't even know about or discuss certain ideas. And I do think we see some of that in our society today in a lot of these debates about you know, what topics are even, can even be allowed to be discussed. And, you know, we're not anywhere near a Fahrenheit 451 world, but we are in a world where there are large groups of people who think that there are topics which should be banished from public discussion. Fahrenheit 451, Ray Bradbury. Thanks, Jim. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. This podcast is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. And Jim, you can say thanks for listening. Come on. You, you, you sound grateful, will you? Thanks for listening. <laughs> This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.